Thank you very much for inviting me to join you this morning for your Sunday service. Uh, It is not often that I am able to be released on parole to join the body of Christ outside of the bonds of incarceration, so I count it a privilege to be among the free church of Thousand Oaks. Um, It is great to be here this morning. For those of you that do not know me, I am a pastor employed full-time by the state of California, working as a chaplain in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations Division of Juvenile Justice at the Ventura Youth Correctional Facility. And it is my joy to daily go behind the razor wire of this institution and to preach and to proclaim Christ to counsel the youth incarcerated there in the truth of God's word and to build relationships with these young men and these young women who are responding to the wooing of the Holy Spirit as he draws them to Christ and they are then reconciled unto God. And I'm grateful to each and every one of you, you that are the God-fearing, law-abiding citizens of California who faithfully pay your taxes, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's so that I can provide and care for my family uh, during the employment of this unique ministry. It is not a very well-known fact, but as a state-employed chaplain, your taxes pay me to preach the gospel. And uh, yeah, believe that or not. Don't you dare go out and spoil this gig I got, all right? It is a great gig. No, seriously, I am very grateful for the ministry that I have. The DJJ, specifically the Ventura Youth Correctional Facility, is charged with the custody and the care and the treatment and the rehabilitation of many of the most abused and then unfortunately by consequence now criminally active and violent youth in the state of California. These youth have committed serious felony offenses under the age of 18. They have gone through the court process and they are then remanded from the counties of California into our facility to undergo intense treatment and therapy which will hopefully restore them back to their communities as successful and productive members of society. And while we know that even the, 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 the best intentions of well-meaning men and women are nowhere close to being able to completely change and transform these youth into healthy individuals, I have had the opportunity for the past 18 years to see firsthand the power of God as many of them are brought to repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then because of the full-time nature of my employment there, I have been able to participate in their maturity and in their growth in grace. A theme verse for me, for the ministry that I am in, is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I'm sure a verse that all of us are familiar with, yet unfortunately when it comes to prison ministry is quoted grossly out of context. I have had many people come in and quote this verse, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. And they tell these people, uh, my, my young people, as soon as they are finished quoting their verse, God has a wonderful plan for you, but it's not in here. Get out as fast as you can so God's plan can begin to unfold in your life. Well, if you know the context of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, 
Somebody was dead as the result of trying to give that kind of advice to the children of Israel. A false prophet by the name of Hananiah came and to the people that were in exile said that he had received a prophecy from the Lord that they were only going to be there for two years, which meant that they could literally sit back on their haunches and ride it out without having any real opportunity for change or even need to change or any desire to change. And so Jeremiah comes, having received the true word of the Lord, reprimands Hananiah. Hananiah dies as a result. And then Jeremiah writes a letter to the children in exile and says, listen to me. While you are there in exile, I want you to build a house, plant a garden, eat the fruit of your garden, find a wife, get married, have children, Find spouses for your children. Pray for the increase and the blessing of the city in which you are in exile. For in its blessing, you will also have blessing. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. And the plans that the Lord had for the children of Israel began in their incarceration, in their exile. And so I desire to see my young people who can be with me anywhere from three to five to even eight years to use this time to grow up in all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. That is my desire as I am there each and every day. And to this end, I am also able to invite and coordinate many churches and brothers and sisters in Christ to join in this ministry. And I am so grateful for many from the local churches here in Ventura County who have come out to engage in this gospel ministry. There have even been some from, from this church who have come out in the past. A group of your elders came out uh, a while back and toured the facility. We're able to see more about the opportunities for all of you to participate in what we do there. There's one uh, special group of faithful volunteers, though, that come out regularly each Sunday morning and join our chapel services, and I just want to give a special shout-out to them, and that is my wife, Dina, and our two children, Gia and Vincent. Dina married me and immediately was locked up and has been in prison ever since. Five-year-old Gia's first Sunday in prison was when she was three weeks old. And she has literally grown up there. She loves going into the chapel. She greets every single one of the guys when they walk in with a handshake. She uh, lovingly refers to them as the guys. Um, uh, Not too long ago, we were asked to speak at another church on the outside. And as we were driving there, Gia asked where we were going. And I said, well, we're going to a different church. And she said, well, but, but, but what about the guys? She wanted to go see the guys. And... So I'm looking for any of you that might fit that profile. I'll introduce her to you afterwards um, so she can feel like she saw one of the guys this morning. There are a few in here that look like they could fit that profile, Lance. Um, And little Vinny, my little son, who now tomorrow will be nine weeks old, is already a six-week veteran of prison ministry. Uh, He is now growing up there as well. And having my family present inside and in the chapel every week has had a tremendous impact on the environment and the, and the respect for the service. And my guys especially have fallen in love with my, my two children. I had one young man come up to me after a service, and he was just looking at, at, at Gia, and he said, Chap, are, 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 is Gia still going to be coming to church here in the institution when she gets to be like a teenager? And I said, well, if I'm still here as a chaplain, of course, she'll still continue to come in. As a teenage girl, she'll come in here? Yes. 
He took my hand, looked me square in the eye, and says, if any of these guys try to mess with her at that time, you let me know, I'll kill them. <laughs> and I think he meant it. <laughs> um, they, they truly have come to love and, and respect my family. I'm grateful for that. In all of the excitement and activity that takes place within the facility, though, and the chapel ministry, the primary highlight for me is the preaching of God's word. I can think of, of no other encouragement with my youth or my engagement with my youth than, that has had more impact on their life, has penetrated the hardness and the darkness of their souls than the living and active sword of God's eternal word as it is wielded by the spirit through the foolishness of preaching. And for me, opening the scriptures and expounding and explaining the eternal truths of God takes a more urgent and passionate form when I realize that I have before me young men and even young ladies that very well, when they return back to their communities, might die when they are released, going back to their barrios and their, and their communities. In fact, just this past summer, I have had three of my youth pass away, two of them in their incarceration, one of them upon his discharge. And it has sobered me, realizing that I am preaching to young people who very easily could experience some sort of violent end. And it makes my preaching that much more passionate, I believe. There's a lot of thundering from the pulpit, which prayerfully jolts them out of their deadness and brings them to life in Christ. It's done perhaps maybe a little bit more simply so that ignorant men can understand and grasp the big grand themes of grace and and grow in Christ. But in everything, I want my young people to see that the authority of God and his word rules over all things. Every area and facet of their life is under the superintendence of Scripture. And if I need to bellow it in their ears from time to time, they will have no excuse that they did not hear. And so prayer and the public reading of Scripture and the preaching of God's Word are regular components of our Sunday chapel services. There's a young man who was discharged a while back. Uh, He returned back to the San Francisco Bay Area. He was in our facility for quite some time and was there for a very serious felony offense But inside, he was also known for frequently being under the influences of illegal substances during his incarceration. But he started coming to chapel for some reason. I think he heard that the kids were there. And so he he came and he joined as I was actually reading through the book of Proverbs as the pastoral reading for each Sunday of the week and of the month. And while I was reading through, just opening the service by reading a chapter from the book of Proverbs, the Lord brought him to salvation as he, he, he realized the state of his foolishness. And on the last Sunday before he was discharged, she gave a brief testimony and stated that it was the book of Proverbs that called him to repentance in Jesus Christ, who is wisdom to us from God. He recognized that it was the word of God, the scripture, the Bible, this sacred book that opened his eyes to see wonderful things, most importantly, his need for Jesus Christ. And so thanks be to God for this powerful gospel that he has given us. And thanks be to God that he has even opened the opportunity for uh, ministers to go in and to share the gospel behind the razor wire. 
as Lance and I were talking about uh, this Sunday morning, he, he pressed upon me the importance of letting you know that you need to be in prison. Uh, you need to come out and you need to be a part of this ministry. It is not just for, you know, a, a few that you don't know where to fit them in in the church ministry. I know, let's send them to prison. It's for all. You know, one of the things that the Lord Jesus even said is you were in prison and you visited me. And so the opportunity that we would like to see is for perhaps even on a Sunday evening, we shut the doors, we close your church down, and you all come and have church with us inside. And uh, we've done this a couple times before with some other churches where they closed their evening services and they came out and joined us inside of the prison for an evening service. It's an opportunity for you to fellowship with my young people, with the body of Christ on the inside. It's also an opportunity for you all to be exposed to the ministry there and then having experienced it to perhaps begin to pray and see if not the Lord would want you to become involved more. And so we are in the process of planning out this. We want to invite you. I am now issuing an official invitation to Bethany that you all come and join us for an evening service at our chapel. There will be a couple procedural steps that you have to go through in order to, uh, to do that. However, I, it is a painless process. We just want to know everything about you. Um, and so we require uh, some information as a result. Uh, but seriously, there are so many that come in and go through this process. It is, it is nothing to be worried about. And if you all would be willing to come out and join us for a Sunday evening service, we would love to open our doors. My guys would be excited to see you. They, y- y- the, the, the church from the outside fascinates them. They are absolutely um, just uh, amazed when people come in from the outside and want to spend time with them. And so for you to be a part of that, I, I hope that we can do that soon and, and become partners in the ministry both, both here and there as well. This morning, though, with the time remaining, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book or the letter written by Paul to Philemon, or if you're one of those, Philemon. A book I'm sure many of us are familiar with as far as its story, but one that perhaps we don't spend as much time in, and so we're also probably a bit dusty in regards to its exhortation unto godliness, most specifically in its addressment of the harmony of fellowship that should exist between brothers in Jesus Christ, even when there has been an offense. Being only 25 verses long, it's one of the briefest books of the Bible and comes in on many lists as third, only behind 2nd and 3rd John. And one of the reasons I think that this book may be both familiar yet also unfamiliar at the same time is because there are really not a lot of sermons that are preached for any length of time from this book. Even faithful expositors known for taking their long, laborious time moving verse by verse through books will not camp out in this book very long. We're all familiar with the 50-year ministry of John MacArthur, and you contrast his 10-year, 298-sermon series in Luke with his very brief, four-week, four-sermon series in Philemon. That's it. Out of 50 years, four weeks are devoted to this one book, and the boy doesn't touch it again. (laughs) 
So this morning, I'm going to try to best him by three weeks and do it all in one. We know this book. It's a part of our Bible reading plan, and we love coming to this book because we can get through it in about five minutes. But we are familiar with it, but we don't spend as much time in it because we quickly move on to the more weightier and more heavier books of Scripture and wrestle with those. But I would venture to say this, and this is only because I personally have been reading and rereading through this book and thinking through this recently as I have taught it in a midweek Bible study in chapel, and also because of some personal experiences that I've been going through in my own life, that this book has much to say and to do with forgiveness and reconciliation. And that it is in our best interest to become as familiar with it as all the rest. For it itself is extremely weighty. Especially when it comes to the reconciliation and peace. Which should be between brothers in Christ. And the gospel then appearing bright and glorious in the midst of a dark and offense obsessed culture. So read with me this simple letter written by Paul to his dear brother Philemon. Paul says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother, to Philemon our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Epiphia our sister, and to Archippus our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the age, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I am Paul, I am, and, and I am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging. For I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we now ask that you would quiet our hearts and would you quiet any desire that we might have to interrupt your Holy Spirit from doing his good work in our lives as we try to make excuses for remaining where we are at. Would you move us from grace to grace? Would you open our eyes to indeed see the beauty of Christ as he fills every area of our life for his glory for the good of those around us. For it's in his name that we pray, amen. This very personal and intimate letter has three main characters which capture our attention as we read through it. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend a lot going over the history and backdrop of this book other than to point out that which has a direct relevance to the flow of the letter. You have, obviously, the Apostle Paul, who is imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has gone as a missionary into the world and is calling people to Christ and is willing even to pay the price for that by his own incarceration. You also have Philemon, who owes his own self his salvation, his entrance into eternal life to Paul's gospel preaching, but is now the leader of a fellowship of believers that gather in his home along with his wife and son. And then you have Onesimus, this rascally slave who did much harm and wrong to Philemon his master. And it's here that I think we need to just pause for a moment and, and briefly touch on the fact that the type of slave that Onesimus is referenced as here is not your lowly, typical of no reputation galley slave. Based on the type of offense that Paul writes Philemon about and the serious concern that Paul has that Philemon not allow any root of bitterness to spring up and defile him, we can conclude that Onesimus was most likely a slave that was considered a part of the household. Even perhaps one that was trusted so much that he was considered a part of the family. Onesimus, the slave, as was common during that era, especially with this type of a household, had access not only to the wealth and material possessions of Philemon, but also had access to the family name and reputation as he would represent his master on his behalf within the community. So the offense that we hear Paul recount back to Philemon is much more than just a lowly slave stealing some small insignificant amount from his master and then running away. It is, in fact, a very enormous offense because it includes a very real betrayal of trust and confidence and even the potential for serious loss of face and reputation for Philemon. To have a slave that everyone thought was fully devoted to you suddenly stab you in the back and then abscound before you even had the chance to arrest him and hold him accountable and demand justice could be quite devastating 
to Philemon's stand in the community. However, as one of the characters in this letter, Onesimus too, while on the run from his master, had an encounter with Paul who had preached the gospel to him, and he also has come to be born again. And so what happened to Philemon in his salvation has now happened to Onesimus as he has been birthed into the kingdom. And Paul now uses this common salvation to broker reconciliation between former master and slave, calling them now brothers. They share a common salvation, a new nature in Christ. And I have somewhat crudely outlined the message in this way. First, you have Paul just classically set up Philemon. Paul sets Philemon up to do what he is going to then, secondly, appeal for him to engage in. And then thirdly, you see Paul's personal investment into this process of reconciliation, followed fourthly by Paul's confident joy that Philemon will do all and even more than what he has encouraged him to do. And so to begin with, first you have Paul's setup. Very classically, he sets Philemon up for what he is about to request that he do. And really, this this setup is absolutely brilliant of Paul, who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to appeal and request, and then not so subtly assume that Philemon will respond in a particular way to both the offense and the offender, in a way that will then give to those that are within the body of Christ an opportunity to see the gospel as having that much more beauty and power than they have experienced it ever before within their fellowship. And so Paul sets up Philemon in this way. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul, wholeheartedly and and full-throatedly, if that is even a word, affirms and commends the genuine and sincere faith that is in Philemon. In fact, the faith and love that Philemon displays, every time Paul stops and and, and thinks of Philemon, he cannot help but thank God through prayer for what he has been hearing and, and seeing take place in his life, specifically in these three areas. Paul commends Philemon for his genuine love for Christ. Philemon is displaying in such a way a love for the Lord that there is no question about his genuine embrace of all that Christ is. We we, we know and we've read many passages in, in Scripture which describe what true love for Christ looks like. And it is unlike what we often now see displayed in many of our contemporary Christian fellowships where it's just this emotive love and and syrupy uh, affection that they have for Jesus. Jesus himself in his Olivet Discourse outlines very plainly what love for Christ looks like, and love for Christ looks like this. Obedience. That is what love for Christ looks like, an embracing of all that he has said and commanded, and then doing it. 
Not just being a hearer of the word, but also then doing the word. And Paul is so convinced that the love of Philemon that he has for Jesus Christ is true because he sees the evidence of his obedience, his submission, and his surrender to the word of God. He has embraced his Savior so fully and so completely that he has no desire but to do what his Lord has commanded him to do. This is the love that Paul commends Philemon for having, a love which is seen through his obedience and surrender to Christ. But then secondly, we see Paul commend Philemon as he grows and increases and matures in the fellowship of faith and in the knowledge of every good thing which is in Christ Jesus. We see this referenced in verse 6. Philemon is being strengthened in power in his inner man to do the good work of God. And Philemon's growth in grace is profound. And Paul marks him as one who is to be admired as an example of what true faith practically looks like, which then leads itself into the third commendation, Philemon's love and ministry and service to the saints. Philemon's love for those that gather in his home brings refreshment to the body as they are taught and counseled and exhorted and discipled and nurtured and cared for by his faithful devotion and dedication. He loves Christ. He is increasing in godliness. And so now he then loves the people. Paul's description of what he is hearing about Philemon is really how all of us Christians should be described. A love for Christ leading to a maturity of faith, which then leads to a selfless service of doing good to all, especially those that are of the household of faith. The maturity of Philemon's love and faith and his confidence in, in his salvation is revealed through his commitment and faithfulness to the saints. Let me see it again one more time this way. Paul describes the testimony he is hearing about Philemon as being this intense, genuine love for Christ without question. The evidence of which is growing as he becomes effective in fellowship through the knowledge of every good thing which has been placed within him for the sake of Jesus Christ, which then flows outward in love for the benefit and the refreshment and the encouragement and the exhortation of the believers who are experiencing this love that Philemon has for Christ in real time and in very tangible ways. They literally are tasting and seeing that God is good as they are refreshed by Philemon. This is Paul's setup. Well, how is this a setup? Well, I'll tell you why this is the perfect setup. Because what Paul does next is basically look at Philemon and to use perhaps some institutional language, don't you dare screw this up, fool. And leave a bad taste in the mouths of the saints, causing them to question the sincerity and genuineness of your love for Christ by holding on to an offense and becoming bitter. Don't tarnish the glorious gospel adornment you wear now with petty bitternesses as a result of vain offenses which will not even register on the Richter scale in comparison to eternity. And so Paul lays out, after setting Philemon up, with an appeal 
that he is going to make to him that Philemon not forget his gospel reputation and he continue in love, both for Christ and for the saints. Look at verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the age and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begot in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Paul, back in verse 8, quite simply sets aside his apostolic authority and does not order or command Philemon to do anything. But before we get to the appeal, we need to stop and we need to take particular note of how Paul prepares Philemon for this appeal that reconciliation happened between him and his former slave by identifying what he could have commanded him to do as being Proper. It is proper. My friends, reconciliation between brothers is non-optional for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is quite simply appropriate and proper behavior for the believer. And the, not, the one who would deny this and seek to hold stubbornly onto offenses needs a gospel education, which the Apostle Paul is willing to give to all free of charge. Which is why he then turns and says, I'm not going to command you to do what is proper, but I rather will appeal to you. And having already laid the foundation for his request upon the sincere love and faith that Philemon has in Christ and for Christ and for the church, he then builds on this and sets forth his appeal. Which you will notice is not so much for a slave anymore to be reconciled to a master as much as it is for a brother to be reconciled to a brother. Onesimus has run smack dab into Paul, who in the providence of God already had a relationship with his master Philemon. And notice the language that Paul uses to describe Onesimus to Philemon in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Paul uses the very same affectionate term for Onesimus as he uses to describe his relationship with Timothy and Titus. In 1 Timothy, my child. In 2 Timothy, my son. In Titus, my child. And now here is this slave being referred to with the same affection that Paul has for Timothy and Titus. It's interesting that he uses 
the same loving relational term to describe this one who has hurt and offended Philemon. And rather than write a letter to Philemon and say, hey, got your guy. Can't believe all he did to you. Don't even trip, homie. We're going to get this fool all fixed up and we're going to send him back to you so he can be a better in his place slave. No, being no respecter of person, but being absolutely convinced that the gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation. Paul lovingly wraps his arms around Onesimus, claims him as one who he has personally seen birth into the kingdom of God through evangelistic labor, and now counts him as another joint heir with Christ in the same way as Philemon. No longer a slave, no longer a thief, no longer just a runaway. Onesimus now belongs to Christ. And Paul almost proudly holds him forth for Philemon to observe and says to him that even though he may have been, play on Onesimus' name, useless to you, the name Onesimus in the original means useful or profitable, And even though at one point he was the anti-Onesimus to you, he has now become truly Onesimus to me in my incarceration, but I think even that much more to you, Philemon. Because formerly Onesimus was deceptive and subversive in his relationship with his master. Stab in the back, cut and run. Where'd he go? I don't know. But now having become enslaved unto Christ, he has become now a useful and profitable instrument in the hands of the Almighty. As a former slave, he may have begrudgingly obeyed while only looking for every opportunity to maliciously take advantage. But now, thanks be to God that even though he was a slave to sin, he has become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which he is now committed. And having been set free from sin, he has become a slave unto righteousness. In fact, if you were to look over in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 9, Onesimus is mentioned there as a faithful and beloved brother. You talk about a radical conversion. And you can almost hear Paul as he writes to Philemon using the term, my child, just how precious Onesimus has become to Paul Whereas in verses 12 and 13, he describes how he is going to send back this formerly useless slave to Philemon as now a slave of righteousness and as even a gift from his own heart to his brother and fellow laborer in the gospel. He says to Philemon, I am sending him to you from my own heart. Oh, I want to keep him. This is how precious this, 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 this change and transformation has been. He has refreshed me, he says, but I am sending him back to you. Paul doesn't hold on to him for his own personal advantage, but sees the sending back of Onesimus to Philemon as an opportunity to encourage Philemon with real evidence that the gospel truly does change and transform lives and even to use this as an opportunity for Philemon to continue to grow and increase in his godliness. 
He is sending him back without any reservation or question of his genuine conversion to Christ, convinced that Onesimus and Philemon now are of the same mind, of the same spirit, having the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, appealing, as he says in verse 17, if you then would regard me a partner, accept him as you would me in the same way that you love me, Philemon. Love now this former slave of yours. This is a heavy appeal. But he has set Philemon up by saying, listen, I'm hearing of your love for Christ. You are an obedient boy. You are growing in faith. You love the body of Christ. So now, here's another one. And even more than this, based on all that we've seen Paul weave throughout this letter, making reference of Christ and the work of Christ and the effect of Christ in the heart and life of the believer, Philemon, if you love Christ, then love this one when he returns, even though he may have offended you. John 15, verse 12, the commandment that the Lord Jesus gives is that we love one another. Here then is where you see the investment of Paul in this process and how Paul concludes his appeal that he has laid before Philemon and how he has lovingly even set him up to do only one thing. He doesn't leave any wiggle room for anything else. He doesn't leave much opportunity for Philemon to negotiate, to come up with a timeline, a set of terms and how this will all play itself out. Paul makes very plain here that he is ready to see this process happen now. The reconciliation that he desires to see take place between Onesimus and Philemon is not something for the future. Reconciliation between brothers is to be engaged in in the present. Paul states that he is willing, in order to see this process begin immediately, to personally invest in it right away. Look at verse 18. That if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. I mean, do you see the gospel beauty of Paul's sincere desire to see these two men joined together in Christian harmony? Paul personally is prepared to underwrite the entire reconciliation process. He is prepared to invest into the restoration of relationship between Philemon and Onesimus through the expenditure of his own limited resources. And he's ready to give generously in order to see this happen now. Not at some future date, Philemon, once you've figured out how you feel about this, and you've had time to stew in your offense, no, let's do it now. Philemon, if there are any hindrances or roadblocks which would inhibit you from freely receiving Onesimus back as a brother, I am willing to pay and remove those from out of your way. He's a third-party Badinsky. But he is willing to pay into this process. And here, I think, is where you see the blessed work of a peacemaker. 
Paul himself, recognizing that he had a debt too big to be paid, yet he has received pardon from God through the personal expenditure of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which has now removed any obstacle hindering him from being reconciled unto God. And he sees himself now as being thrust into the ministry of of being an ambassador of reconciliation because he himself has been reconciled unto God. And yes, he is inviting people to also be reconciled unto God. But that reconciliation also mandates the importance of being reconciled one to another. Thus fulfilling the law of Christ that we love one another. That's Christ's law for the church. And so Paul is willing. Let me pause there for a minute. If you want to be a legalist, camp on that law. To love one another. That was not in my notes. And so Paul is, is willing even though he very assuredly reminds Philemon, you were reconciled unto God, young man, because of what I have preached into your life. You owe to me your entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. But, but he is willing to do everything in his power to ensure that the integrity and the beauty of the gospel is seen without question. Paul, being spiritual, seeks to restore And he will personally and generously make sure that restoration is secured so that the gospel retains its holy integrity. There is a a, a member in my extended family. He's very dear. Loves the word. Loves to read the word. Loves to study the word. Loves to have a set of brightly colored pens next to her and marks it up, listening to sermons, everyone knows is very, very devout to the study of the word of God. But over the years has accumulated a bag of offenses that causes everybody to look and question and go, what? How? How do you be so devoted to the word and yet carry all this with you. And people literally question the integrity of the claim. And Paul does not want to see that happen in the life of Philemon. Here's Philemon showing excessive love for Christ through his obedience, his desire to grow and mature and increase in the knowledge of everything that makes him equipped for the gospel. He is devoted to the service and ministry of the saints But one little petty bitterness can ruin the whole thing. This is why you see Paul appealing. Oh, don't let this happen. Don't let this bitterness define your character and integrity as a believer. And even more so, don't let it define your ministry in the gospel. Verse 20, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul wants to be refreshed as he sees Philemon sanctified through this process and he wants to receive more joy as he observes this one walk in truth. And so here again, 
verse 21, Paul is so convinced of the maturity and the sincerity and the genuineness of Philemon's salvation and growth and grace. Paul sets Philemon up at the beginning, but he does so because he knows who Philemon is. And he comes around full circle and he affirms again that his setup was correct by saying that he has confidence in his obedience. I'm writing to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Rather than do the bare minimum and just simply grunt upon Onesimus' return, okay, so you're a Christian now? All right, let's see how it plays out in your work as a slave. Get back to work. No, rather than this, Paul is convinced that Philemon will go above and beyond and out of his way because Philemon's gratefulness unto God for his salvation is rich. And out of that gratefulness, he is also grateful then for those who have personally invested in his growth and godliness. He loves Paul. So when this former slave returns, he will gladly and with great joy throw open the doors of his household church and welcome his former slave into the family and the household of God as a brother. And just for a little bit of humor, look at verse 22. I think Paul sets Philemon up again, maybe with a little twinkle in his eye. At the same time, also prepare a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. I have to say, I did not receive this from the Lord, brother. But who do you think this room or lodging was actually used by? If Philemon was to receive Onesimus back as if he was receiving Paul himself. I'm just wondering if this might be Paul's way of quietly hinting, hey, make sure Onesimus has a nice place to stay when he comes back home too. Isn't that what we see in the picture of the prodigal son? Runs away, stabs his dad in the back, wastes it all on riotous living, finally comes to his senses, remembers the goodness of his father, comes back, I'm not worthy to be your son, make me a slave, and the father lavishly welcomes him back. The reconciliation that you see there is amazing. Puts a ring on his finger, a robe on him, and says the one that is lost has been found. What a beautiful picture this is. One that we need to look at frequently. Take a a screenshot of this. Put it up on the refrigerator, maybe on the mantle. Look at this often. Because we are so quick to hold on to things that can creep in and cause us to question about people, cause us to avoid others, cause us to look across the room, maybe even look across the sanctuary and go, ugh. Cause us to carry little offenses, little bitternesses that can taint our interactions with others. Listen, the the fellowship that we have as the body of Christ should be sweet. There should be no bitternesses. There should be no tinge of sourness in what we do with each other. And even in the event where something truly, tragically offensive happens... 
The offense that, that Paul makes reference to between Onesimus and, and Philemon is quite serious. Nevertheless, as a third party, he was willing to personally get involved with that process, spending of his own resources, because he wants to see reconciliation happen. This is of the utmost importance within the body and fellowship and harmony of the saints. Because when this happens, the gospel is seen as worthy of being adored. Jesus Christ is worshipped as the one who does what the world says is impossible. Taking a slave and a master who are at odds with each other. And turning them into brothers who have the same mind. Preferring one another in love. Not thinking of themselves as more highly than they ought. You know, as I was studying this passage, it was interesting how many times I kept turning back to Galatians from time to time. There really are some striking parallels, at least for me, between Paul's firm rebuke of the legalistic Galatians and his gentle appeal to Philemon. Both have themes of reconciliation and restoration between brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't have time to go through this with you this morning. But if you remember, take some time this afternoon and read through the book of Galatians during your quiet time. But I'd like to close this message with some application. Application which comes directly from Scripture. Turn to the book of Galatians. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out some very practical behavior that the church should often be reminded of, which will assist in the reconciliation of brothers and, and even protect from allowing future offenses to boil over into these festering bitternesses. So if you'll permit me, I'd like to lay out application directly from Paul himself. And how we should interact with each other keeping in mind that even though he has, the spiritual, he has the spiritual authority to command us to do what is proper, receive this as an appeal, that in the same way we love Christ, that we then love one another. Galatians chapter 5, verses, starting with verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, Envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. 
for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, indeed, how precious it is that we have been given this unique picture, a look at what gospel reconciliation looks like. I'm sure that many of us can think of scenarios or situations or settings or individuals even where we have allowed little things to creep in. But Father, I pray that you would stir up within each and every one of us a love for Christ. Oh, how we want to love you. Not just in word, but in action. We want to grow and increase in godliness. We want to love your people. So by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impress upon us our need to depend upon him. Even when those little things try to creep in and cloud or distract May Christ always be before us. May a love for your people always be with us so that when people look at our fellowship as those who have claimed Jesus Christ, they can say, behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. May we be refreshed by one another as we see each live in light of the gospel. And may indeed it be for our good and the glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.